Splashin'. Welcome to Season 5, Episode 11 of Siren Sundays with me, your host, Lashanti the Siren, because this show is focused on speaking with researchers, scientists, and practitioners of environmental science and all things conservation. You are now tuning into our conservation conversation outside, and today's guest is Shannon Yates. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. <laughs> As always, it's a pleasure. Definitely. And being my first in-person guest, this is all a unique experience for us both, for you guys. My zero watches so far, but I'm sure you guys will tune in soon. Hopefully the audio is great. Looking forward to, oh, I've got a one like, hi. Looking forward to starting the show. So Shannon, can you just tell us a quick introduction on who you are and what you do? Um, so I am currently a PhD student at Tulane University, which is located in New Orleans, Louisiana. Um, currently, I am studying thermophysiology in regards to climate change. Um, and so what that means is I study how ectotherms, which are animals that use the environment to thermoregulate or to come to homeostasis um, using external heat. Um, and I study how those animals will adapt to different environments. With our changing environment, um, due to climate change, where places that were, no, were not hot is getting hotter, and animals are being introduced to different climates, um, how are they adapting to those climates? Are they being successful? What adaptations are happening? So I look at it in terms of a thermophysiology side. Yeah, that is really interesting because I think a lot of times when humans think about climate change, we don't start considering some of the other animals that depend on regular temperatures mm -hmm. to, to survive. And, you know, especially things like reptiles, these little cold fronts that we see like in Florida, you have iguanas dropping out the trees because it's that much colder than I guess what they would like it to be. So let's take a quick dive right in. I know we have a slide for everyone. So we're going to start with how did you get here? How did you get into studying herps? Um, so I... From I remember growing up earlier in my younger days, I was always intrigued by lizards and how they would change from the green to the brown. Um, and so, gory story time, <laughs> I would like literally dissect them because I wanted to see if like their organs were like the same as humans. Um, because all of the books that I had were on human um, physiology. And so, I mean, I couldn't see all the organs, but I tried. Um, and that sort of like segue into me wanting to become a medical doctor because I was just so curious about how other things are living in the world with us or how we are living in the world or co-living in the world with these little tiny animals. And so I went through like the normal, you're great at science, so you do biology and everything biology related. So I was on a medical track um, until like one summer at the University of the Bahamas, I took conservation biology with Dr. Mundell. And it sort of opened up my eyes to this like new world of science and what can be done and the questions that you can ask. And so that sort of like directed me into the natural science and biology as in the environment. Um, I didn't necessarily own in on what I wanted to actually study until I was done with UB. Um, I did a couple internships and a couple 
not a couple, but a lot, <laughs> a lot of um, research assistant positions um, with scientists that came into the Bahamas um, and they were doing um, research here. Most of them were lizard researchers. And I remember on this one particular trip to Long Island um, and we were looking at lizards and it was the middle of the day and it was hot, <laughs> hot as hell. Um, and this lizard was just out on the rocks basking. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I'm like, I want shade. Like, why would you want to be out here? So that like sparked the idea of um, studying how they adapt to the change in heat around them. Um, and also sparking that is when I did a research trip solo to Ragged Island, um, which was sponsored in part by the Bahamas National Trust at the time. And I took a mailboat, which was unheard of <laughs> for like uh, a young person just out of college, jumping on a mailboat for three days just to look at some lizards <laughs> in the Bahamas. And so when we went down there, it was kind of like the similar thing where the vegetation makeup is of that dry um, wildland coppice, which is like exposed rock mm -hmm. and complete like shorter trees opposed to like what's in the northern Bahamas you have longer trees and you have more lush environment and so I noticed that animals were also basking in the middle of the day on these rocks and I'm like I'm under a tree sweating hot and he is just sitting in the rock middle of the day and trying to thermoregulate and it kind of like sparked the idea of like how are they doing this and why are they doing this? Um, and so I started applying for graduate school and I looked at individuals that were studying thermophysiology and had similar um, interests as me and the, in the questions that I wanted to answer in terms of like climate change and adaptation within ectotherms. And I landed on Tilden University. <laughs> That is a lovely journey. I think hearing that you went to Ragged Island on the mailboat, right? For three days, that's wild. But it, it is those types of experiences that really kind of ground you in what you're doing. Um, but I do see we have some pictures here. So can you tell us a little bit about as soon as these trucks pass? <laughs> this is being outside. <laughs> yeah. um, right. So tell us a bit about what we're seeing in these pictures. Some of these pictures look like a lot younger versions of you. So, <laughs> so let's hear about that. Um, yeah, so on the top corner, um, with the sort of like pink binocular, um, pink thing and the binoculars, um, I not only did work with lizards, I also did some shorebird work. And this was looking for shorebirds, um, I think in Andrus. Okay. Um, we were looking for piping plovers. Um, and then the other picture below, two pictures below it is on my one of my very first research based trip with shed aquarium um doing the assessment of bahamian rock iguanas in andras as well so i'm holding a baby iguana 
And if you know anything about me, I absolutely love iguanas and bohemian rock iguanas are my favorite <laughs> thing, which I dressed up as a bohemian rock iguana for Mardi Gras in New Orleans this year. Nice. I did see those pictures. <laughs> yes. Um, and so along that trip, um, another researcher was on board and she was looking at um, how they were developing eggs. Um, so we were doing ultrasounds in the ocean um, of female rock iguanas. Um, below that is when I did a internship at the Leon Levy Preserve, which I think their applications are open for. So you guys should definitely, <laughs> if you're eligible, apply for that. Um, with the Amoeba lizards, um, we call them forest runners or blue tails here locally. Um, the other picture in the center is the very first time I was able to collect blood from the tail of an iguana, which in my opinion was like, <sighs> oh my gosh, <laughs> um, amazing. Um, it's a skill definitely that isn't like, not everyone has it. Um, it took a while to get that. And on the very top right corner is me and my field assistant, Lala, on the mailboat that was about to go to Ragged Island. Um, below that was my first dissection, not my first, but like my more professional dissection of a lizard, um, oh. which was like really cool because I got to see its heart. <laughs> Unlike your dissections when you were younger. Unlike them. <laughs> yeah. So this was like, I got to see more organs this time, which was exciting. So I do have a question. Um, the third picture, which would be the one with you taking the ultrasound in the water. Mm -hmm. Why did you have to hold them in the water? Um, I think, not I think, but because the salt water has um, ions, you can better be able to see the, the oh. imaging of the ultrasound um, compared to like fresh water. Oh, that is really cool. Mm -hmm. So I know we have a few more slides. I'm going to keep the slides moving. All right. Yeah. So we have some more. What's going on in these ones? You um, have such a colorful journey. <laughs> oh, wow. Um, so these ones, I think, are just like continuing to highlight some of the other stuff that I did. Um, the top one, again, is Ragged Island. And I just wanted to emphasize the fact that I took a mailboat <laughs> to Ragged Island, which is like one of our most southern islands in the Bahamas. Um, there's not much people live in there i think when we went it was a population of 20 persons oh, um wow. on island um it's mainly a fishing um island so most of the persons that their their main source of income was going out and fishing um it was really cool that i got to see two bahamian boas um alive oh, wow. in in ragged island and i didn't really go to look for them but that was pretty awesome um the other two photos to the bottom are of that same trip to, no, one was Exuma Keys. Um, and I think this was the first photo of me holding a uh, an Exuma Keys rock iguana, wow. which was pretty monumental at that time because this was a big boy. <laughs> he was a pretty big um, iguana and he was pretty aggressive too. And I calmed him down and I was able to hold him to take a photo with them um and then the other photo is like our conversion of like putting seawater in like that big tupperware to see um the ultrasound and i was 
playing around with that. I got to do it also, which was like really nice. When you go on these research trips, you're not just a spectator. Yeah. You're actually helping the researchers and you're like learning skills too. Hmm. Um, and then we have the Leon Levy Preserve to the bottom um, photo with Joe Wazalewski. He is a herpetologist of natural selection in um, Florida. I think he comes down and he's a guest um, lecturer mm -hmm. for the, the internship. We learned a lot from him um, there. And then the middle is another very prominent um, Bahamian, not Bahamian, but he does a lot of work in the Bahamian John Iverson um, with the Zoom Iraqi Guanas. Okay. Um, so he has had 30 plus years of research working mm -hmm. on rock iguanas. And I might be incorrect with the years. It might be more. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then we have um, Tammy on the left with that crab. So I also did land crab work. Oh, nice. <laughs> um, so I enjoy eating them and I also enjoy studying them. <laughs> yeah. I think that's the beauty of um, working in the environment. You can definitely study some of the things as I adjust. You can definitely study some of the things that you enjoy eating, especially for the Bahamas. You know, we have things like the Nassau grouper, spiny lobster, and of course, land crabs. Now, I know we do have a question in the audience. Let me just pop that up on the screen. So William Gus, or Will Gus, uh, asks, mm -hmm. hi, Shannon. Recently, I've been seeing a few green iguanas in my area. Should we be concerned? Mm -hmm. Oh, gosh. Yes, and why? <laughs> We should be very concerned and very alarmed. Um, these guys are very prolific um, breeders. Mm -hmm. um, they're herbivores. And so they eat absolutely anything that is green and growing. Um, so it, it destroys our natural habitats mm -hmm. um, that is naturally growing. And with the destruction of the habitats, you have like a trickle down effect. So there's no habitat, then other animals aren't able to use it as refuge. Mm -hmm. So fewer birds, fewer snakes, and some Bahamians would be happy with the fewer snakes, but snakes are good for us. Mm -hmm. um, they help to mediate other pests in the environment. Um, and not only you'll see the trickle down of the habitats, you'll see less and less um, biodiversity. And we all know it's super important to have a diverse environment, right? Um, because there are balance and checks place in places mm -hmm. to make sure everything goes according to how it's supposed to go. Um, one of the problems Florida have right now with rock iguanas, I mean, not sorry, green iguanas, iguana, iguana, green iguanas, <laughs> is that they are destroying infrastructure um so you don't think about the fact that they roost together and so when they roost together they're gonna try find somewhere high and warm from away from predators but unfortunately we don't have any natural animals that predate on them mm -hmm. and so they bear down on structures and bearing down on structures create damage to those structures interesting yeah and because one individual can, one female can have about 80 babies, like twice a year, wow. that is a lot. So that's 120, um, 160, my bad, <laughs> 160 um, individuals from just one female per year. 
And if you don't have anything eating the babies or like picking off the babies, all those are gonna become adults, right? And that's really not really great for us because we don't have even like the area mass um, to sustain a population like that. And where they are native is um, Central and South America. And they have natural predators and they also contend with um, humans consuming them. And it's a natural thing in those areas. Yeah, and I think um, a lot of people don't realize that most animals, unlike humans, actually have a lot of babies because they do expect only a small percentage to survive. They don't actually need 160 per year to survive, but mm-hmm. just in the natural order of things and the primal instincts and behaviors, um, we find a lot of these other animals are working to maintain population, not overpopulate. Um, we will continue on to the next slide. Perfect. We're going to start getting a bit into your actual research and the poster presentation that you recently did. Thermal traits in lizards. Mm-hmm. What are we looking at here? Why study thermal traits? Um, so we study thermal traits, especially in ectotherms, because um, these thermal traits will influence them um, physiologically. And when we say physiologically, we mean the functions that make up or make the individual tick or go, Mm -hmm. right, and operate. Um, So ectotherms get their energy from the, their thermal energy from the environment. So imagine, I'll take me as an example, you transport me into Alaska. I've grown up in a tropical and subtropical environment my entire life. Um, Put me in the coldest part of Alaska. Initially, I probably won't do well because I'm not suited for that cold environment. Mm -hmm. But maybe I will develop some some physical traits that will help me to adapt to that cold environment. So I study how an animal, mainly lizards, because they're like some of the most abundant ectotherms um, on the planet, adapt to new environments and how those adaptation um, work for them advantageously, Mm -hmm. right? Um, So you're kind of looking at a map of how the climate is changing from over the last 200 years. Yeah, I think it was supposed to, oh, yeah. Yeah, I know it was supposed to play, but... uh, Uh, sadly, <laughs> Murphy's Law, just like all this light penetration on my face. And we have the beautiful Siren Pups in the background. Very upset that them, as the only live audience to ever be on Siren Sundays, cannot even participate in the show. Mm-hmm. Next time, my dears. Um, so we're going to move on to our next slide. And definitely, um, maybe Shannon, if anyone's interested specifically in this slide, feel free to reach out to Shannon on Twitter or Instagram. And I'm sure she'd be happy to share this diagram. Yes. So how do you test this? Um, So we test this using um, preferred temperature and thermal heat tolerance and thermal cold tolerance. So a preferred temperature is generally the temperature where an individual will feel, would prefer to be at because all their physiological um, processes will be at their peak, Mm. right? Um, So we kind of like create this in the lab by using this gradient 
um, this thermal gradient, having a heat lamp at one end and having the surrounding room very, very cold. So it creates a gradient from anywhere from 18 um, degrees Celsius to 40 something degrees Celsius, okay. 42. Um, and so animals will choose a temperature at which they best uh, is suited for them. And so we run this experiment for an hour and then we get the average of um, the temperature and that is considered their preferred temperature. Okay. Um, and then we do their heat tolerance. So imagine you being placed in a, an environment that is twice the, the temperature that you're used to. You have a limit to where you want to be or what temperatures you can ex be exposed to until you your bodily functions begin to decline, yeah. right? So um, what we do is um, we do a write-in response with the animals and we flip them on their back and the temperature at which they can't write themselves, we consider that thermal, their heat tolerance. Mm. We also do the same thing to get their cold tolerance. And these tests aren't um, invasive. They're still alive. They're still well. Um, and because we are working with invasive species, we do... <laughs> we do not keep them forever after the experiment has been done. Um, we help the environment by removing them. Um, in humane ways. In, in very humane ways. Are you ready for the next one? Yes. Um, so with these, after we did this, or me, <laughs> um, we then compared like their, so we wanted to test a couple things. We wanted to test whether preferred temperature was repeatable. And what that means is like if um, the temperature at which um, individuals in that experiment preferred is that temperature repeatable among the individuals, right? right? So that will tell us that um, animals will have like a consistent temperature at which they prefer to be at. Right. So they can have optimal um, physiological processes. All right. Um, so we wanted to see whether this was true because most of the liter literature says that preferred temperature um, is repeatable and that it correlates with their heat tolerance. Um, so we also did their heat tolerance and we found no repeatability um, between the individuals um, and it was not statistically important. I don't think I should use the word important. Yeah, I was going to say, any, <laughs> any data, any results are good results because you've learned something. Yes. Um, yeah, it was not statistically proven okay. um, that preferred temperature was repeatable. Um, and then we correlated the preferred temperature to the heat tolerance because um, the theory is that the higher your preferred temperature is, is the higher your heat tolerance would be. And so if your preferred temperature is high and your heat tolerance is high, that means that you could sort of like sustain like higher temperatures in the environment, mm -hmm. right? So if you took like a, a lizard from here and put it like in the Sahara Desert where it's like a hundred times hotter than, well, not maybe not a hundred times, yeah. gross exaggeration, a lot higher than what it is that they're used to, technically they're supposed to still survive okay theoretically yeah. theoretically <laughs> theoretically um 
And so we did not find a correlation between individuals having a high preferred temperature and a high um, heat tolerance. Mm -hmm. And so what that means is just because you have a higher um, preference or preferred temperature, mm -hmm. it doesn't mean that you're going to be able to sustain higher um, environmental temperatures. Um, and so this isn't necessarily what most of the literature literature <laughs> suggests out there. Um, and it could mean one or a couple things. It means that our the process by which we use to test um, the correlation between the preferred temperature and the heat tolerance wasn't sensitive enough, mm. um, which I will be trying to tweak this summer and um, redoing the experiment to see if we get the same thing, um, or that there is just no correlation between having a high mm. preferred temperature and a high heat tolerance. So could it be, and you know, correct me if I'm wrong. <laughs> yes, Lindy, this is the first in-person interview of the show. This is our pilot episode with in-person. As you can tell, there are a little bit of <laughs> light issues, <laughs> um, but here we are. Uh, and also good afternoon to my aunt Denise, who is one of my faithful viewers. But so my question to you now that you've kind of explained that, because I've obviously talked to Shannon about this before, but could it be that preferred temperatures um, in these lizards in a way have nothing to do with their physiology. Like maybe some lizards, cause I mean, just like we don't know what exactly is going on in our body, but some people like hotter temperatures versus others, but then others might be able to tolerate hotter temperatures than these ones who prefer, you know, what I'm, you get what I'm going, right? So is it a possibility that these lizards, they just like the temperature versus it's actually the optimal temperature for their physiology? That is a really great question. I am smart, you know. Like I, I be hosting the show, but I'm a scientist. Like let's not let's not get it twisted. That's a really great question. Yeah, it could be behavioral. And it and that is um that is potentially something to explain. Tulane, um, give me my PhD, please. That's something to potentially explain what is happening. Um, but I think to like outrightly say that we would need more data to mm -hmm. support that that theory um but no i can't answer that See, i need to come to what is it, Anderson, right? like <laughs> if you're watching i could totally be your new researcher i'm with a behavioral standpoint because i think oftentimes we negate that yes while an other animals may not be thinking beings like we think we are Mm -hmm. There may actually just be a natural preference, as we've seen with domesticated animals. Like some dogs just have a quote unquote favorite toy for mm -hmm. whatever reason it is. And it could just be some of these lizards, their preferred temperature is solely based on behavior versus like the physiology um, of that animal. I will say, though, there, there, while there might be behavioral driven in theory, um, you have to understand that they do have to have a certain temperature for them to be optimally functioning. Mm -hmm. um, and it's as simple as the, I need to survive. I need to make sure all my bodily functions are operating at an optimal um, standard that I need to procreate, to digest my food, mm -hmm. to just grow right. right so when we evaluate um fitness in these individuals we look at 
what temperatures are influencing these three things, mm -hmm. right? Growth, fitness, and sexual reproduction. Yeah. Um, so yeah, <laughs> we have to consider that too within like the, the realms of, is this temperature just too hot for them? Or do they like this hot temperature? Or what is driving that within the fitness bracket? Because yeah. I think something that might also be interesting for your lab, I clearly want to, <laughs> clearly I'm very interested in this. And I think just to note for viewers, because um, obviously I don't interview myself in these, I've always been more interested in the behavior side of a lot of things, you know, human behavior, animal behavior. I used to work with dolphins and sea lions that got trained. Um, so one of the things that I'm now curious about that you may be able to take back to Tulane, to, to Tulane, um, it's just even looking at any sort of, because obviously you guys have done high temperatures, low temperatures to find out their preferred and the, the tolerance level. Mm -hmm. um, and we know what the optimal level would be based on our studies of their physiology, mm -hmm. but also maybe even taking a deeper dive into the genetics, right? Like do these the, the oh, lizards I that, that you mentioned, right? That. <laughs> the lizards that maybe like the same temperature, are they related? Do they have some common genes in them? Like, is there some special, you know, as we know with evolution, the survival of the fitness, like some of these ones that may have in their genes, like we see with some corals that just can stand higher temperatures. Mm -hmm. Maybe that's kind of what it is. Because again, I, we don't know, every day like what's the optimal temperature that we're at for our bodily functions we just kind of have an estimate and because we can think a bit more mm -hmm. than some of these animals maybe they just again they're just kind of doing what feels best i really love that you brought this up so i will say that this project that i did was <laughs> a a sort of like a side project in the bigger project that i'm doing okay and so for my dissertation hopefully. Um, I am investigating how these ectotherms adapt to different environments. So you will have, for example, environment A, which is like a cooler, warmer, shaded temperature or environment, opposed to environment B, similar to what I ex um, explained earlier about, you know, that exposed white land coppice. Um, that ex experience in higher temperatures. So what I want to investigate is how are these animals in environment B adapting versus how animals are in environment A, sort of like along a gradient, mm -hmm. right? Um, and so I want to find out what are the genetics of those individuals in terms of is there a gene associated to, with heat tolerance or cold tolerance? And do you see differences in those genes across environment A and environment B? Also, I would like to investigate sort of like what the optimal temperatures are in those environments, how the temperature ranges different. Mm -hmm. um, so in environment um, A, for instance, your optimal temperature or your highest temperature, average temperature might be, say, um, 37, right? And environment B, it might be 50. Gross exaggeration of numbers here. <laughs> um, so the optimal temperature for um, this ectotherm might be 32 degrees, mm -hmm. right? So how is each individual or each population in environment A and environment B um, adapting to those like restraints of the um 
of the temperatures mm-hmm. and how are they um, evolving? What genes are associated with that, if there are any? Mm-hmm. Um, do they have any similarities in in um, gene expression? Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So those are like some of the things I want. And I also want to find out. Um, so metabolism is like really important too, because with the getting energy from the environment, you know, you need to do all these internal stuff. Um, and so how does the optimal temperatures in each environment influence how you metabolize stuff? Right? Interesting. This definitely, <laughs> again, we're going into a wormhole, but clearly we're going to have to have Shannon come back on the show again, because this is a very interesting topic for me. I hope you guys are also find it interesting. Um, I see that we have two more questions in the chat. So I'm going to pop those up really quickly. Um, we have from Jewel. Benavy on oh. YouTube. She says, hi, ladies. Great show thus far. A bit off topic here. Did you have your research topic before you started your PhD journey? That's a good question. I had my research interests. Um, I was, as I mentioned before, I was very interested in how um, animals were adapting in Ragged Island in that exposed um, coppice mm-hmm. opposed to how they were adapting say in New Providence where there's a lot more shade and even when you go into like the the pineland forest there's absolutely more shade compared to like your whiteland coppice yeah. um, the the heights of the trees are different mm-hmm. you know so you're going to have different um, shade quality um, so I had a, a broad idea of what I wanted to do, but not necessarily the exact questions that I'm, I'm asking. Mm-hmm. I think, yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a good point. I think a lot of people who are probably watching who are interested in pursuing PhDs, because even with me, whenever I have that idea thrown around, it's kind of like, well, what in the world? But it is interesting to know that once you have a general idea of the area, you, you, you tend to refine that right when you mm-hmm. get there. Um, I know Jill has a follow-up question. Also, what has been the biggest surprise in your study thus far? In the study thus far? Oh, in this in this study that we okay. Um, (laughs) I think the biggest thing was that there wasn't an actual correlation between um, preferred temperature and heat tolerance. So the The literature kind of says that, you know, the higher your preferred temperature is your higher your um, your heat tolerance is going to be. And when we didn't find a correlation between that, like I immediately was like I went to my advisor and I was like, I think I did something wrong (laughs) because I didn't get what I was supposed to get Mm -hmm. or I think I was supposed like what I intended Mm -hmm. to get. Um, and he was like, all right, let me look at the numbers. And he was like, oh yeah, I think this is correct. (laughs) (laughs) Um, so that was like the biggest surprise, I think, of this particular study, um, that I didn't get what the popular thing was. (laughs) And it was a little scary (laughs) for me. I think you may just have some very, um, very attitude-y, <laughs> if I may say, lizards up in New Orleans. So I think 
you know, and but this is just obviously me just joking about my initial question about the behavioral influences of her research. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, that's interesting. I also see another question coming in from YouTube. Uh, another faithful viewer, Kerwin Mullings. Cool, came late. That's okay, it's recorded. <laughs> but I would wonder how much water lizards with higher preferred temperatures would retain or intake, or does that even matter? That's actually an interesting question. Is that something that you guys have looked at? Water intake? Did he say water lizard? No. So I'm going to put it up again. Um, how much oh, water, water lizards? Oh, oh li yeah. How much water lizards with preferred temperatures would retain or intake? So is there a different, is there a correlation between that? I personally haven't looked at it, but I'm sure the literature is out there. There is a lot of work on water loss. Um, and that just goes to that refers to like how much water an individual in a particular environment would or can take afford to oh, lose mm -hmm. um yeah i personally haven't looked too much into that um but it is something that i'm thinking about also building into my my dissertation project water loss because different individuals or different species are going to have different water um, retention needs mm -hmm. right so again in our desert versus our tropical animals tropical animals i think would less likely be concerned about water loss because the environment itself is so cool mm -hmm. um, opposed to a animal in um, the Sahara Desert, like they would want to lose less water. Um, so that will sort of like, um, that will be related to behavior, right? Okay. Um, so it will dictate a lot of like when they can go and thermoregulate because they want to lose as less water as possible um, just because there isn't a lot to gain. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, yeah, so that's more of like a behavioral thing. And it's a very small, it's a simple, like, addition to any experiment. Nice. That's a really great question. Yeah. We have some great viewers <laughs> today, as we always do. Um, but I do, just really quickly, and I admit ignorance, because obviously I do not study herbs. Do lizards sweat? <laughs> <laughs> do lizards sweat? Um, I don't I might be wrong if I say no, but I don't think they sweat, but they definitely lose water. Um, it's one of the reasons why they don't pee. They lose a lot of... Um, they don't pee? Yeah, they do. I lie. <laughs> no, they don't, they don't pee like in the in the normal like sense of peeing, like mm -hmm. water come through. They like all their... Um, you know, when you see lizard poop and you see that white tip on... Oh, yes, I've seen those. So that's like the urea. That's the way they expelled um, any like <clears throat> water-based fluids through that thick, pasty um, water. I mean, thick, pasty thing. Um, they would prefer not to pee. Um, I think I have seen lizard like pee on me before. So they, but it's not a, they don't do it intentionally. It's more out of a response to threat mm. or like i might die so whatever <laughs> interesting yeah because because i know snakes do like a musk, a musk right and but they don't 
pee either? No. Interesting. No. We're now talking about reptile urine, <laughs> which technically wouldn't be called. You can hear the pups. I'm sorry I keep looking over to my left. They're actually very upset that I'm outside and they're not here. And they were pulling on the banana tree shrub, whatever. But anyway, mm -hmm. they'll be released soon. Um, but Kerwin did say thank you. But it is yeah. an interesting topic. So that brings me to one of my next set of questions. As we start to wrap up this episode, we're already 40 minutes in. Oh, my gosh. I no. Um, right. So what inspiration uh, would you give to young people and especially young girls? Right. Because we don't hear about a lot of girls and women in studying reptiles or just even studying terrestrial things. I think the Bahamas has a lot of females in the marine side, but I don't off the top of my head. I can't think too much about women working with snakes and lizards and, and all these other quote unquote creepy crawlies. So mm -hmm. what inspiration would you give to some young viewers or young people interested in working with herps? inspiration oh wow <laughs> um i would i would definitely say if you're passionate about it don't listen to any of the chatter um there's a lot of people who would say men especially that would say you know women aren't great herpetologists or women won't do good because they're females in the herpetology world mm -hmm. and i've actually heard that directed to me personally before um ignore that that is absolutely incorrect those people are coming from a place of they're very insecure um so you have to be passionate about what you're doing you have to want to do it um and i believe once you have that passion and that want and that drive everything else sort of like disappears and dissipate beyond that um keep going even when you feel like no one is on your side. And if you do feel like that, you can just send me a message and I'll encourage you because, yeah, we need more women in the field. Um, yeah, just keep going. Don't listen to the chatter. And I will say, and of course, we can't, we're not going to exclude men or young boys, but yeah. I think if you are a young guy or young boy, man, don't discourage females that you see are interested. I think just growing up, right? Because I've, and I'm going to put my brother on blast here. Sorry, Lawrence. He was always more scared of insects and lizards and stuff, whereas I wasn't. But I mean, I didn't get into herbs. I mean, I do still find them a bit creepy, but there's this stereotype that the girls are scarier and we're not interested in getting dirty. Like, I know being in the field, I, I get my nails done regularly and everyone's like, she can't collect data. She gets her nails done. I'm like, that has nothing to do with my ability or my desire to work and be in the field. And I think mm -hmm. just so anyone out there, this is. This is why we highlight um, the importance of inspiring young women. Like, you can still be quote-unquote girly and still be in the field. I mean, look at us. We're wearing yeah. makeup. Like... Yeah, right? <laughs> I get my nails done. And I think, so we have another question coming in, and also along with a hashtag. Hashtag women in science, definitely. Thank you, Javelle, one of my dear friends from Barry. Uh, so she says, reptiles survive the beginning of times. So it's not surprising, it's not too surprising them having a varying temperature preference. Very true. Um, we've had reptiles on this planet, I'm assuming, longer than us. Yeah. They are the dinosaurs. I mean, chickens yeah. too. Chickens are pretty creepy. Man, look how alligators have been around from the inception of the planet. Like, they're doing something that everyone else should probably follow. <laughs> they know how to survive. They drink water and mind their business. <laughs> so I think, and again, that's... We are wrapping up. How can viewers who might be watching now, watching or listening later, how can they follow your work, get involved with your work, or even get in touch with you? Um, so I'm very accessible via um, Twitter, email, 
email is probably like the most most like quick line of connection to get to me or even a um a dm on instagram i'm pretty like responsive to instagram i do try to post a lot of my work on twitter so you can definitely um follow me on twitter um so you know the changes in my direction in my work um yeah so social media i would say or old-fashioned email Awesome. So I did just pop her handle in the comments there on YouTube and Facebook at SSYates17. You normally would have been seeing it on the screen, but in us piloting this first in-person episode, I realized that the beautiful background I usually have displayed is not showing because we're on one screen. But we're going to get better. We're going to do more. And we do have two last things to, to pick your brain about. So throughout your career, throughout this amazing journey that you've had, is there any sort of... um? Because a life lesson that you might have learned in the field that has now, you know, like, what is it, permeated through the rest of your life. Do you have any, like, a life lesson that you want to share? Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'd say the, the one that stands out the most is experiments fail. You just pivot. <laughs> and I'm still learning that and I'm still trying to apply that. But... That is so fundamental, especially when you're doing or when you're piloting experiments and you're trying to learn about a system and you think you know everything about that system or you know enough about that system, but that system tells you more than you can ever like expect for it to tell you. Mm -hmm. um, and so you have to adjust your expectations um, to meet those new, the new information um so being able to not hold on to something for a very long time just because there's new information mm -hmm. being able to pivot with that new information i like that because that is also a great life lesson if, if something doesn't work out you just you just pivot Right. Mm -hmm. Just like experiments. And, and a lot of times a failed experiment actually teaches you a lot more than if it was successful. Yes. And our last and final question before I let you go and before we go run and play with the siren pups for a bit. <laughs> who is someone in the sector, whether they're local or international, that inspires you and why? Oh, wow. <laughs> These are really great questions. And I don't want to leave anybody out or make anybody feel like they haven't inspired me. Um, but I'll go back to like the first person I met in the Bahamas that was instrumental in getting me like fully immersed in herbs, which is Miss Sandy Buckner. Um, <laughs> Sandy <I> Port. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I met her in the summer of 2013 or 12, one of those summers. Um, I was interning at the Bahamas National Trust. We had just come back from... Andrus, which was eco camp and i remember the following fall i was going to do my independent study um for you know my degree my bachelor's degree and so she brought to the trust for some reason i had stayed back really late and i was like one of the only persons with um the education officer there and she pulled in and there was this cage with this um, marine iguana, no, marine toad, which is hmm. cane toad. Cane toad. Yes, Rinella marina. 
um, this cane toad. And I looked at this animal and it was so stunning. Absolutely stunning. It was a male. It was bright yellow. So it's probably in um, breeding um, colors. And so I gained an interest in the animal and we had numerous communications about the cane toad back and forth. And she has been very encouraging of my pursuits into herps and into learning more. Um, she was very instrumental in some of the connections I made with um, Shed Aquarium. Um, that introduction to the cane toad in that summer led to me doing a independent study on the introduction of the cane toads in the Bahamas, which then led to me presenting that work at the Bahamas Natural History Conference in I think their second ever student series yeah. presentation, which then I won. And it gave me a lot of exposure to more scientists that was at that um, conference. Mm -hmm. And that kind of like segue into being research assistants for these people and then meeting um, Kirsten who then recommended me to the Gunderson lab and then me applying to Tulane University. So I say all that to say, Sandy Buckner was like really kind of like, you know, first stone. Yes, yeah. that sort of like helped to push that along. And she's, to this day, she still is like writing me emails and asks me how my Aww. PhD is going. Um, and when I presented at the conference, I hadn't like really like publicized it or anything. And she writes me an email it was like, oh, I saw you presented at the conference. I was like, oh, cool. <laughs> she still follows me. <laughs> yeah. So that's beautiful. I think, and it is, it's amazing, or not even amazing. I think it's very significant to me that she's also a female in herbs. I know you've told yes. me many stories about her and how she will just jump into the bush and grab an iguana <laughs> or a lizard or a snake. And I'm mm -hmm. like, you go, girl. <laughs> like, yes. Because I, okay, that's not my, <laughs> that's not my cup of tea. Uh huh. Yeah. Uh, and it was... It's very, for the career that she's had, like um, documenting Bahamian herbs mm. and the longevity of the career that she's had. And she's still doing that up to this day. Um, it's inspirational that you can have such a long career in doing something once you love it, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. That's, that's important. I feel like that's another life lesson. Mm -hmm. I think when you are doing something you love, um, and you're doing something that you feel is your purpose and it's very purposeful. You tend to live a longer, happier life. Um, and the lighting on my face is getting worse. <laughs> and we are coming to the end of the episode. So I'm going to say thank you so much for all of my viewers. We've actually had a lot of viewers today for this episode. So clearly Shannon's got some fans back in Tulane. Um, and I'd like to thank all of my regular viewers and all the new ones for riding another wave with us on another episode of Siren Sundays. We do have one more episode left after this. That'll be next week, Sunday. So I hope to catch you guys all there for our finale of season five. And again, thank you for being on the show. Thank you for having me again. It's always a pleasure. Right. And piloting my first in-person. We're going to get it a little bit better. We're going to tweak it up a little bit more. But I hope to see you all soon. All waves yours. <laughs> Lashanti the Siren. You guys have a wonderful Siren Sundays.